In this episode, Colin and I talk about CodeGen and how we use CodeGen at Stripe. We'll also mention a conference talk at RubyConf that already happened. So if you're curious and you want to see that, head over to the description and we'll have a link for you. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Build and Learn. My name is Colin. And I'm CJ. And we weren't going to record today, but we're suddenly both free. <laughs> yep. Because, yeah, Twitter was going to have a developer conference called Chirp, but it's canceled. The entire conference is canceled. It is canceled. Yeah, we. I think we talked about it a few episodes ago where we were pretty excited to see uh, Twitter getting back to its developer roots and... It kind of burned to the developer community a few times over the last decade or more. And this was looking like a good sign that that would be different. So if you're listening to this in 2023, you already know about all this. But obviously, Elon bought Twitter, what, in October? Yeah. I wouldn't have wanted to necessarily be at that conference working at Twitter and having to answer questions. Right? Like, imagine being a dev advocate right now and being asked all these questions that you don't have answers to. Right. I don't think there are any more develop like all of the people at Twitter who were on the developer advocacy team that I was interacting with. I don't know any of them that are still there. Like uh, half of them or more were laid off in the first round. Some of them quit shortly after. And I think the rest took the opportunity to bail when elon was like hey if you don't want to be here and grind it out then like right you can, here's the door and <laughs> they just yeah he sent everyone that email of do you like me yes or no right <laughs> <laughs> yeah circle yes or no yeah uh, so I know. so chaotic i think yeah chris messina tweeted that it was like 97 percent of the i don't know if it's he said platform so i don't know if that means developer platform and in like even the developers of the platform, including the developer advocacy team, are just not there anymore. So it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, there's also just a ton of people going out in like flames of glory, you know, like just calling out Elon on Twitter for showing bad charts or using bad metrics or saying like, oh, he, I think he said something like, oh, the the app is slow in certain countries because it's doing thousands of RPC calls. And then someone was like, not true. I've been working on this for like six years and, yeah. you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, five seconds later, that person's fired. Just today, I was watching some TikToks where people were like counting down until they got locked out. And then, you know, they had champagne ready to go. <laughs> when they go yeah. down their laptops and stuff. I mean, even uh, Justin Jackson was sharing some tweets today about how, like there's been some news posts that came out this morning about how the building is locked down again and no one can get in. And then he shared a tweet from someone who used to run their access control and that, you know, it's calling him back to help. Like they're all locked out of the building and that he needs help getting back into the building. It's like, oh man, like, I don't know. He should have bought it and not touched it, I think is what. It's like, it's like, uh, no, make, don't make any big decisions right after you make a big purchase decision. It's like, <laughs> yeah, the way that I've been thinking about it is that he has started or made big influential moves on the cultures of Tesla and SpaceX and all these other companies when they were really in their infancy. And so the people I know who work at SpaceX or worked at SpaceX made the conscious decision when they joined SpaceX 
to sleep in their van in the parking lot because they knew they were going to have to work like 90 hours a week. But they did that because they wanted to be part of like this thing that he was building. But on the other hand, there was like all of these people at Twitter who I think were like really happy with the quality of life. And they chose Twitter for the community and like all of these great work-life balance benefits and working remotely and all this stuff. And then he comes in and shifts the culture from the top down. And, you know, 80% of the people who worked there didn't want to work in that environment. And so it's just kind of like blew up in his face a bit. But. Yeah, well, and I think the rhetoric right now is that they don't want to work hard and it's just a different culture. It's like there are definitely people who got let go who know how very, very specific things inside of Twitter work. And now yeah. no one will know how those things work. And right. sure, that might be bad documentation or whatever, but like I'm looking at my Twitter right now. I've been on Twitter since March of 2007. There is more than 15 years of culture that has already been developed at Twitter people have been there for, since that time some people have been there only a few years but you could probably look around at all the tech layoffs and realize that yeah everyone probably overhired since the pandemic started but just wholesale cutting half of your your company because you bought something with a bunch of debt is gonna have some waves for sure and i think everyone's trying to figure out like how do you make money and like we we pay for twitter's api like i don't think a lot of people know that there is a paid offering for the API. And I think some people were like making calls on Twitter for like, make the API fully open again and let us make as many calls as we want. And it's, does anyone remember what it was like when that was the case? Like the fail well was prevalent. It wasn't a reliable API. I, the guy who works on, or the, probably the team now that works on um, TweetBot, you know, I've followed him for years and just watched like their issues because they even were like limited to the number of API keys they were allowed. And so it's like when you buy TweetBot, you get one of our 100,000 API keys and only 100,000 people can use our Twitter client. It's like, in what world is that normal? Mm -hmm. Part of his thing early on was like there's too many bots on Twitter. And so I could see him arguing for just shutting the whole API down. Like you have to be a human that's on the app that's tweeting and we're only going to let that fly and not let people have API access. But gosh, I don't want that true. to be the world. That's true. And so, that's something that I'm paying attention to because we integrate heavily with Twitter at Orbit, yeah. right? So I'm like, okay, what does this mean for us? And right. some people are asking us for Mastodon integration now and we're looking at that, but like, some people, I still, I looked at the API and it's pretty similar, but, and this will get us into our topic today, but the, the tricky thing is it's just not a really mature set of tools around it. Mm -hmm. And Mastodon servers are just melting right now because people yep. don't know how to host Mastodon. People are realizing that a centralized service with a whole DevOps team, it turns out is pretty important mm -hmm. instead of a bunch of Mastodon fail whales. So you are, are you on Mastodon like as a user? Yeah, I joined the Ruby Social one. So Ruby.social. Um Same. I like it. You know, it's a little it's a definitely rough. You can tell it's an open source project. Uh, yeah. There's some is things it, is it like implemented with Ruby? Is it a Rails app? Do you know like I actually don't know. Okay. Because um, there was someone who posted in the Ruby Social Mastodon main feed or whatever. Also, I don't know what the terms are. I'm still trying to figure out what like this whole those toot toots. toots yeah, you got to make some and... toots. Someone tooted, and uh, their toot was about how like there's all these issues on one of the Mastodon repos, and they were basically making a call to action for all the Rubyists that were in Ruby.social to help maintain it. 
Yeah. I was like, is this thing like implemented in Ruby? I don't know. So. Well, I think uh, Mike from Sidekick runs the Ruby Social one. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. So if anyone knows how to scale things, I think he's going to be pretty set there. But yeah, I'll have to check and see. It'd be interesting. Maybe we, we should do a, a chat and maybe even we find someone who's more familiar with Mastodon to talk about it in the next episode. Getting Mike on the show would be really good too. Just talk about Sidekick stuff cool. eventually. But with all that said, like there is an API for Mastodon. When we get into working with APIs, we mm-hmm. can work with those like raw and make API calls, but most of us are using SDKs and you're actually going to be doing a talk. Uh, I guess the talk will have happened when this episode comes yes. out, but uh, it'll probably be released on YouTube a little bit after this podcast comes out. So um, let's dive into SDK generation and kind of what you're going to be chatting about at RubyConf. Yeah. So a lot of times if you're implementing an API, you can have the API spit out an artifact that has like the shape of the API. A lot of times that's like the open API spec. Are you, are you, do you have the open API spec for orbit? Uh, yeah, we use uh, okay. open API, which I think is the same as swagger these days. Right. That's yeah. Yeah. Swagger. I think swagger got like renamed to open API. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it could be open API spec or it could be, I think JSON API is another mm-hmm. one. And then, uh, or you could have like gRPC proto buff, like your proto buff schema definitions could be like another artifact, but basically you just want like, or even in GraphQL too, right? The GraphQL schemas, all of these are versions of some um, sort of declarative thing that gives you the shape of your API. And it's usually like, what are the endpoints? What are all the different parameters it expects? What's required and not required? And what you can do is take that spec and then run it through a tool to generate and spit out an SDK. And if we really wind back the clocks to talking about like XML APIs, then I don't know, did you ever have to work with those XSDs? I had to do... I had to do SOAP APIs with WSDL yeah. files. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. So uh, way back in the day, this is like pre-JSON, uh, a lot of APIs were implemented with XML. And we had to do this at MyVR with some of the big booking engines or like listing platforms. They, they didn't have JSON APIs. They had XML APIs. And you could get an XSD, which is an XML schema definition, which mm. is similar to an open API spec or any of these things. But then there were tools that could take this schema definition and generate bindings or an SDK, client library, whatever, in a given programming language. So in that case, we were you know, taking XSD, converting it to Python. Um, and for the Stripe API, we spit out the open API spec. And then we have this really, really badass tooling that takes the open API spec and generates all seven of our official supported server languages, like the SDKs for all of those languages. So Ruby, Python, PHP, Node, Go, Java, and .NET, we have Stripe SDKs for all of those languages, and they're all now automatically generated nice. using the open API spec. And I, like, I know that I've used Orbit Ruby or some sort of Ruby clients for Orbit. Are those also generated, or are those man- maintained by hand, or? You know? I think they were written by hand, and I would say they are not maintained. So that's, oh, they're not maintained at all. Okay, like 
I haven't touched them since I've been here. So, and yeah, the folks who built them don't work here anymore. So mm -hmm. I think this is one of those things where, you know, I wrote down here, like, what does SDK generation help to solve? Because the API has changed, right? And so we get to spit out at this new artifact of a new spec, a new open API doc. And it would be really nice to have that always be in sync, right? Now, once that changes, the docs need to be updated and the SDKs need to be updated. And then you need to communicate those SDK updates, you know, if it's a gem, if it's a NPM module, those need to make it out as, as version changes, you know, whether they're breaking or non-breaking changes. Do you think that most SDKs today are done automatically? Or do you think that a lot of people are still handwriting those? I think... So there's a there is an interesting trade-off when you're looking at generate like automatic generation. And that is like if you want your SDK to be readable, then using the automatic generation tools don't really generate very readable code. And so if you just take like the open API spec and you run it through the Swagger code gen or the open API code gen stuff, it spits out like a giant huge library that is it's automatically generated, but it's really tough to use. Right. Um, and so your trade-off is like, do we want to use automatic generation and have like a really tough to use tool or do we want to write our own or do we want to like build our own generation tooling that does like a hybrid of both? So that's the tooling that I'm excited to share and talk about is like this hybrid of, of both worlds where we've, we've built this pipeline, but um, the whole point of SDK generation is to make sure that your, like all of your client libraries are staying up to date with the API. And so... Yeah, going back to the top of the show, right? You're talking about how like, yeah, we might just make API calls directly to the API using curl or Postman or something like that. But when we're integrating that into our applications, we're going to be using Ruby code or JavaScript code or whatever to make those API calls. And one option is to write your own like class that represents a client of the API and then use HTTP party, REST client, whatever sort of built-in library there is for making HTTP calls or to use a library that is provided by the third party to integrate with. For instance, Transistor, the host, the podcast host that we have for this platform, I found like an unofficial community Ruby library for it. And I was like, ah, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I want to add a list of all of our podcasts to my website. I was like, oh, I'll just use the Transistor API and you can like get an API key. And so I just built, I wrote a class, very simple transistor.rv, like Ruby class that uh, has a couple of helper methods on it that will just make the request to fetch all the episodes and paginate and iterate over those. So that's the trade-off between the two is, right? Like you're going to either have um, no, no SDK and you expect your all developers to go and implement all of those helper methods themselves, or you have an SDK that's auto-generated by a really generic platform like Swagger CodeGen, you end up with this massive, huge library that is like really hard to read. Or the third option is that you build your own generation tooling. And when you say it's hard to read, you're talking like, I mean, now it's just as hard. Like you're, you're having to reference the docs all the time because it's not, it's machine readable. It's not necessarily like a, an amazing developer experience. Exactly. To make this more concrete, if you take the open API artifacts that are spit out for the Stripe API and you run it through Swagger CodeGen, one of the like wrapper classes it gives you is 30,000 lines of Ruby code. And then for every single resource in the API 
and all of its like sub resources, it will generate cl classes and files. And there's like 2,200 files. <laughs> so it's like you're either reading through this ridiculously massive like file or like thousands of files to try to figure out, you know, how do I construct an API called with the right classes and the right methods and things like that. And so, right. Because um, you do also have to have like docs for this new client library too when you yeah. build that, right? And Stripe is infamous for having very good docs and very human readable SDKs. And I think a lot of people think that to get there, you have to have this huge docs team and this huge SDK team and that you're going to write everything bespoke. But you guys have kind of fallen in that happy middle of generation plus some hybrid. Is that custom handwritten stuff that's being done in the middle there? So yes, and for a long time, for like seven plus years, we manually maintained and hand wrote all the SDKs. So when a new feature would land in the API, there was a Slack notification and then these volunteers would jump in and start making PRs to all of the different SDKs and publishing publishing those. And that would take several hours, sometimes a full day of work to add the features, especially to Stripe Java. Like Java is just so verbose that, you know, if you change an enum, you've got to go change and update like six files in Stripe Java. And so we built this layer. It took two years to migrate all the SDKs to. And the other thing was that we were trying to build the generation so that it mirrored what the handwritten versions were before. So like you've got to back into your existing patterns. And so we built this framework. Uh, this guy, Alex Ratray, he runs a company called stainless.dev that does this like SDK generation and developer experience as a service now. So you can like hire stainless.dev. And uh, he built like the first versions of this tool that we use internally called Prettier Poet. And Prettier Poet is a React-like framework where you have components that are language specific and they give you things like method calls or, you know, literals or strings or uh, a, like, you know, instance variable assignment or class definitions. So you can use these language specific ones. They also have like all the tooling for comments. And then when you build your high level React component, you can use the open API spec as the data. That's kind of like your original data tree. That's the input into that. And so you can generate all the classes. So in the Stripe API, there's like customers and subscriptions and payment intents. Those are all defined in the open API spec. You can like iterate over all the resources in the open API spec and have those feed into this React component that is going to be like, oh, this is the resource component and it knows how to generate the class. And then it can use the spec to know like, what's the class name and what are all the methods and what are my, what are the documentation strings that should be added to the top of the class and to each of the methods. And um, what's really cool about this is that like, at first we did it just for SDK generation, but now we have like this tooling that generates the Postman client. It generates the API reference. All of the code snippets that you see in the docs we're generating like tons and tons of those with this like higher order Markdoc component called CodeGen Snippet, where you basically say like, okay, this is a, an API call to V1 customers. It's a post request and here's the arguments. And that will spit out the code in all seven languages. It shows the code in curl. It shows how to do it with Stripe CLI. And that's like all auto-generated now. And before that was all like just string interpolation and ERB files. So, Wow. Yeah, I was going to ask, because it sounds very similar to Markdocs. 
so you guys have Mark Docs and your SDKs are being fed by this generation. If I'm if I'm thinking of the trees properly, right? So you have your open API spec, which then feeds into Prettier Poet and then generates those those artifacts for SDK SDKs and your docs. Yeah, exactly. And even things like we have a Visual Studio Code extension. So if you install like the Stripe for VS Code extension, then you get like snippet completion. So you can type like Stripe payment intent create and hit tab. And that yeah. will auto-complete a snippet in VS Code. Like that's also powered by this thing. And so uh, I think even like the Stripe shell. So if you go to the documentation and you hit like tilde or whatever, it pops open a little drawer at the bottom that lets you have this interactive shell for making API calls directly in, in the docs. And all of that is backed by Wait, this, this, this. This is in the docs that you guys have? Yeah. So if you go to like stripe.com slash docs and then hit, <laughs> yeah, hit like, you know, backtick or whatever, it should pop open stripe shell which is like a browser-based version of the stripe cli oh wow yeah yeah <laughs> i'm finding uh, out all the secrets today yeah, yeah it's the other one we just found if you go to the uh, if you just go to customer.new do you mm -hmm. know about this one uh no what is customer.new if you go to customer.new as a as a url it launches into stripe and tries to create a new customer if you're nice. logged into stripe yeah, we've just found that because we also we have member.new for orbit. So if you just do like even make a bookmark for member.new um, and click on it, it just launches a little screen to add a new member to your workspace. But um, I think a lot of people are starting. There's like a whole list of all the ones you can do around the web now. I'm sure there's like a notion page.new or something out there. But so I definitely knew. Okay, so invoice.new works, subscription.new works so there were a couple that i knew about i did not know about customer.new so <laughs> yeah it's uh, whatever company gets to the tld before anyone else because now no one else can do subscription.new only only stripe powers that but uh, yeah fun little easter eggs for the internet i'm trying to think if we have any other ones for but i'll have to share that console with uh with uh, alex who works on a lot of our stripe stuff and even the i didn't know that there was a vs code extension you know because in my mind I was trying to think of like how all this is really exciting when you think about even the open API spec teaching GitHub Copilot, right? Like just being able to be like, I don't want to go always look at the docs for every little thing, but like GitHub Copilot or Stripe CLI or Stripe, you know, VS Code extension help me with what I'm working on here. And when I've used SDKs, like some SDKs are just as rough, like I would rather go just do curl calls or like HTTP party or something like that because I know what I'm doing. There are some amazing ones. Embedding that the Discord one is probably auto-generated. But what's really cool is that like once you get the table stakes of just good SDK generation done, the Discord client libraries also help you respect rate limiting like automatically. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, so it's got a bunch of like mutexes and like backgrounding that happens to make sure that you're like, you're not writing the code yourself to make sure you're staying within those rate limits, which is really nice. But you probably don't get to work on stuff like that if you're having to handwrite these things every single time that the API changes and then you get this drift. I mean, honestly, this conversation is inspiring me to go look at our Ruby. I think we have a Ruby one and a JavaScript one. And I think that's probably it. Um, but I do know that the JavaScript one, it's like very opinionated. And I think that's the challenge. It's like whoever wrote that one, that's how you use it. 
it's not necessarily how you might write it or how I might write it. And so there's like that kind of like an opinion about the developer experience instead of just saying, taking a customer object, if there's a class for it and being able to like add an invoice really easily and let it fill in all the parameters for a customer and do all that stuff behind the scenes? Or do you have to go build each object by hand and then send it to the client in order to save those things? Right. And I think sometimes what's interesting about building this like generation layer is say that you make a choice early on when you're building the SDK that you want to have people interact with the API through like class methods on some resource, right? So you have like stripe colon colon customer dot create and that takes in some a hash that will like pass those arguments to the api but later you decide that oh it's actually way better if instead of having these class methods globally available that we have a client where you can like new up and say like stripe equals you know stripe dot new and then you call like stripe dot customers dot create and so what's crazy is like you can use the this like generation layer to implement both patterns and then you can slowly start migrating people over to this new pattern or just enable both both like methods. And so if you look right now, there's definitely parts of the Stripe docs that are still one foot in the old world for like some of the SDKs like PHP, where we had all of the documentation written as class methods. But the API ref and all of the auto-generated snippets are now migrated over to this like client and services pattern. And so that is definitely one of the benefits. But yeah, if if your original authors <laughs> took like one approach that you disagree with and you don't want to break everyone, then it's it can be challenging to like release a new pattern and have everyone upgrade or yeah. Just alias, alias everything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think one of the considerations that I've heard with SDK generation is if you're not a Rubyist, for example, and a Java person writes a Ruby client library, right? It's probably not going to follow Ruby conventions. And so like, this is something to consider in your SDK generation is that these tools probably should know a little bit about the standards in Java look like this and Python looks like this, even just variable naming and stuff like that, class names. Camel case, you know, snake case, all those kinds of things where you can tell they're like, oh, a Java person wrote this or a JavaScript person, TypeScript, whatever it looks like. I'm trying to think through like pros and cons here. It sounds like you probably have more contained like testing and continuous deployment and being able to have failures and tests and all that kind of stuff along the way. Totally. Yeah. So what's cool is that if you have patterns built into the API, then you can test your generation layer and be pretty confident that it's going to spit out the right code. And if it's spitting out the wrong code, then you can fix it at the generation layer and that will fix it all like in all the downstream places. So it fixes the docs and it fixes the SDKs and it fixes kind of everything ideally. Um, but yeah, it's, it's also important, I guess, to mention that like we're taking the open API spec and by itself using the spec was really challenging in order to go from like this giant JSON object into all of these SDKs and client libraries and whatever. And so there is this like intermediate step that we do call like compiling the open API spec into this thing called Stripe type. And so I th we initially started with Flow, but I think we're using uh, TypeScript now where we take the uh, the original JSON blob that came out of the open API spec and then we build all of these different like discriminated types 
for what the high level resources should all look like. And then we use that as our input into Prettier Poet and our input into all these docs tools. That way we have this much more like strongly typed and wired up tool because the, the open API spec will actually give you back the resource and here's the methods, but also like down here is in a separate area. Here's the responses. And you kind of need to combine both of those in order to have all the information to implement a strongly typed language like Go and C Sharp or whatever. And there is that intermediate step. And if people are interested in learning more about that, Richard from our team did a talk at Strange Loop last year. And so we'll put a link to that uh, on YouTube. And it's super interesting to watch how that evolved. But yeah, when you were when you're talking about how like like snake case versus camel case versus whatever. Have you ever used a uh, Ruby motion, Ruby motion, like for, I'm not. okay. So there was, I think 2012, 2013 or something, you could use Ruby to implement like iOS apps and it had like some tooling to spit out. I, it must've been like objective C or something like this, but it was so funny because the class, like the class names would be like, you know, application on init with whatever, you know, and completion block or whatever. <laughs> like kind of the Apple, the Apple, like. Uh, Objective C name for the method, but it was just like in Ruby, so it was like def and then like this eighty-five character method name. But I think probably uh, everyone who's been around for a while has encountered some SDK where you're like, this is not, this was not like implemented by Rubyist based on all the different right weird names and stuff that are in here. Yeah, but I, what I like is that everything is then in code. You can commit, you can add to a change log. The change log goes out to all the different SDKs. So does that mean that you guys release, when you release an update to one SDK, you always release an update to all of them? Or is there some yeah. like, yeah, so there's not really like, oh, we're only going to bump one because it affects all of them. It Yeah, so we will release, so s there are some changes that only impact the strongly typed languages. Right. Because we do use some metaprogramming for some things. And so like, if there is a change to an enum, like there's already an existing enum, and we're just adding like a new value for that enum or something, then it only needs to change Java go.net and the type definitions for Stripe node, but it doesn't need to change Ruby or Python or PHP because those are all just going to say like, ah, what, you give me a string, you give me a string, it must work right. <laughs> because they're not like checking types or anything. As soon as a feature is generally available, it kicks off this domino chain that is pretty wild. Like, it will automatically generate like all the internal versions of it and tests and snapshot tests and like all of this stuff. And then it will also kick off the Slack message. And then the SDKs team goes and runs like generate, 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 generate on all the SDKs. And that all makes PRs and those PRs get reviewed. And once those are merged, those all get deployed out to like, you know, Ruby gems and NPM and Maven and Gradle and whatever. It's interesting to be the person that's going to tick the box that says this is generally available now and it's like you can't take that back very easily yeah i was thinking like as a small company or a smaller company it's like whoo we're going to be running a lot of we're going to run a lot of servers and spend a lot of money right now when we tick this box and a lot of mm -hmm. prs and cds are going to fire up and you're going to get a bunch of servers running a bunch of code and now we got a bunch of prs to review and yeah it's pretty exciting yeah now. That all that said, like I think it is really valuable and important to have features immediately available in the SDKs because that is like the main way that devs are using and feeling Stripe, right? They're like um, their first impression is 
okay, I installed Stripe Ruby and then I tried to make a customer or something like that. Like usually they're not interacting with the Stripe API directly. The actual numbers of people who are using the Stripe API directly through official SDKs is massive. Like it's surprising how many people use the SDKs instead of just making raw requests. Well, I mean, with Stripe, there's so many requests that you need to chain together, right? To do some things. So I feel like that one makes a lot of sense because a lot of people aren't used to, you know, carrying around all the responses and like, let's make this call. Like I've done the like, you know, do the full process of checking somebody out in Postman, right? And it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, it's good to know how it works. But man, a library really makes a lot more sense for this one, right? Yeah. With Orbit, it's like, okay, sending an activity is just one call. Now talking and pulling data out of Orbit requires a lot of chaining of APIs calls to get IDs and stuff like that. And some of the things we're thinking about is like, how do we, I really like when APIs have like the side loading. I think you guys have that with yours where you can say like, this is an ID, but I want it to be the full object. I don't want the ID of it. I want the customer with the invoice attached and those kinds of things I'd really like us to have. Cause right now it's like, here's an organization ID. You go get the organization that it's attached to and make another call when we already know who that is and all that. I think the thing that we're not talking about here that we should probably talk about in a future episode is that like this assumes you have an open API spec and that you have like a well-designed API. Like this isn't designing your API for you. This is just the tooling around your API. And, you know, I've been thinking of what our V2 API looks like so that we can get a a different API spec because our API is a JSON API and it turns out JSON API is really good for like machine to machine. Computers understand it. I mean, it's most of these, right? Like a SOAP API has a WSDL, like you were talking about these XSD bindings, um, all those kinds of things. It's like teaches the computer what it can call, but does not necessarily always give the developer like a fun light bulb experience of sending a, an SMS with Twilio or sending an email with SendGrid or whatever those things are, it's like, it should be fun. And, I, you know, I, I've always thought of APIs as like turning on a light bulb across the world, right? It's, it's just fun to have that as a superpower. And now we can charge a customer in Stripe or, you know, send an activity to Segment and have it populate everywhere we need it. So I was curious and I, I jumped in. I did write a couple of Orbit integrations, like one for piping in some dev.2 blog post activity and another one for piping in YouTube. And I was looking at like, oh, did I just hit the API directly or did I use the SDK? And in one of them, I used the the Orbit SDK. The other one I didn't. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'm using Orbit activities request and then passing in just like a giant blob of arguments and the body and everything. Mm-hmm. And then in the other one, I'm using REST client to just hit uh, like orbit.love slash API v1 or whatever. Nice. Um, yeah. I mean, it's something that we all have to make decisions when we we actually have our own Orbit HTTP client now in Ruby. And I think it'll be interesting. I'll have to see if my coworker Steve has any interest in eventually opening that up. But it has a lot of that rate limiting stuff built into it like we had with Discord. We sometimes will use official SDKs for our integrations, but sometimes like if our API is only going to ingest data and never create data, some APIs don't give you API keys that are read only, things like that. So like we're like, we only want the endpoints that get the data. We do not want to even have 
a method that lets us delete or create mm -hmm. or any of those things. Um, but also just sometimes like just being able to standardize re responses, standardize what happens after because every SDK, like we're talking about here, the experience is the opinions of the developer team that put together the SDKs. So like because of how we built out our newer integrations, they almost all use that Orbit HTTP client, which I think is a wrapper around REST client, but there's just like a bunch of really nice helpers and it's more declarative. So you can just say these are the endpoints and we're not rewriting because that's like the challenge when you do a lot of integrations is that you're doing the same thing and translating it to every API and being mm -hmm. able to have some standards. Once the response comes back, we know what it looks like every mm -hmm. single time, which is really nice. So this is the client that you're using to integrate against other third parties, not Correct. against Orbit. Right. Okay. And then yeah. our, gosh, I, I almost wonder if it's possible to like take the third parties and see like, oh, do all of them have open API specs or something like that, that you could then use to build bindings. that like, yeah. yeah. The, so like you have your HTTP client and then you could build like that middle layer that we've talked so much about, which is like the adapter layer. And I, it sounded like you had a pretty cool uh, like pipeline for that mm -hmm. already, right? But yeah. 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 Each integration essentially ends up with its own like Stripe client, for example, that uses the Orbit HTTP client. And it's just the methods we need. Mm -hmm. And because everything is built on that client, we don't have to go implement everything all over again. It's just really like, is this a get? What's the endpoints? Is it slash customers mm -hmm. or whatever? Now, obviously, once you release something as like a public gem or whatever, now you comes with the burden of supporting it and documenting it and mm -hmm. taking issues and PRs and all that kind of stuff. So do you, you guys, I'm assuming, don't take PRs necessarily against these SDKs then, right? So there are parts of them that are not generated and we will take PRs on that. It's kind of like, I, I refer to that as like the core. So if it is if it is that sort of um, item potency or retries layer or interacting with, you know, SSL or... Mm -hmm. um, the patterns like, oh, is this a client versus client services or a class method or whatever, we will take PRs to modify that core. But all of the pieces that are boilerplate that mirror the API, those are all generated and it wouldn't make sense right. for anyone to make a PR. And But they can record we, an issue so you guys can go check it out and see like, oh yeah, that's actually not correct. Exactly. And, and upstream. I would love to see us actually move the generation code into the into the open source libraries. The generation code right now is all private source. And I was looking at AWS gem. I think this might be the most popular Ruby gem by downloads or something like that. Uh, and they also generate this client, but they're doing it in a generator that's open source and it's like part of the library. And it was interesting to look at. They have basically these giant mustache templates and then they iterate over some input, some input that's like similar to open API spec. They don't have this intermediate Stripe type style compiler thing, but uh, I do love to see the generator there because as an open source contributor, you could make a change to the generator that's like, oh, it would be better if it was like this, or it'd be more perf like performant if we mm -hmm. use, I don't know, yield instead of block.call. You know, I don't know, like <laughs> the actual, right. you know, Ruby, whatever magic stuff, but. And someone might learn from this, uh, you know, AWS one and start generating their own SDKs for their own. Like we would just end up with better SDKs all around, right? It's like yeah, putting totally. it out there so that more people do this as a, as, a, as a norm instead of it being like, you do what? <laughs> yeah. 
it's super hard to explain all of the benefits of Prettier Poet and like the way that it looks and feels and the shape of it. So I'm hopeful that uh, if this is interesting to you or you're inspired, you go he head over and like check out the talk on YouTube nice. because there will be like code examples and such. Is Prettier Poet open? Prettier Poet is not open. And that's another thing that I'm like hopeful that we will eventually open source. I'm just like so pumped. So you're it. you're hearing about it here first, you know. Yeah, or if yeah. you're at RubyConf, you'll you'll get to hear some of this as well. That's uh RubyConf is the one that's in Texas. Is that the one yes. that you're going to? I'm gonna go to the yeah, RubyConf Texas. Because the RubyConf Mini that was just in Rhode Island, right down the street, was gonna be the same time as the develop like chirp developer conference right. that we just missed. So Thanks, Elon. Thanks, Elon. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, I think we're at time for today. So it's awesome to kind of dive into SDKs and all the stuff you guys are doing at Stripe. I'm definitely going to go take a take a peek at our SDKs after this and think about what we might need to do. You said you wrote them for seven years. We're not at that point. Like we're probably going to be handwriting ours for a while, but at least getting some eyes on our SDKs and just thinking about how we're doing that would be, would be good. Totally. The show notes for this episode are available at builtandlearn.dev. That wraps it for this episode. Thanks, everyone. See ya.